Welcome to Childhood Art, a podcast sponsored by the Center for the Study of Childhood Art at the University of Arkansas. I'm Christopher Schulte, Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. Hi, I'm Hyam Park, Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of this Childhood Art Podcast. Today, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Courtney Sherbine. Courtney Sherbine is an independent researcher interested in the play and literacies of young children. With 18 years of experience as an early childhood teacher and teacher educator, Courtney's teaching and research interests invoke posthumanist perspectives on language and literacy, which take into account the material interactions between young children and things that they encounter in their personal ecologies, particularly related to popular culture. Across her work, Courtney is concerned with what comes to count as meaningful literacy in play and the conditions under which certain literacies in play are ostracized or othered. Courtney's research has been published in the Journal of Early Childhood Literacy, Childhood Studies, and the Journal of Language and Literacy Education, among other edited volumes. Courtney lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with her young son. Dr. Sherbine, welcome to Childhood Art. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. A dream come true being on a podcast Aww, with so you guys. It's just, it's even better. So thanks. <laughs> well, I wanted to I wanted to start with a question that circles back to the the uh, the talk that you recently gave as part of the Childhood Art Speaker Series. So, at the at the onset of your talk, you discussed the idea of being there um, as a kind of ethical relation to children and their work. And I think it's it's a really important idea. It's one that I I know we've had conversations about in the past. Uh, but I wonder if you could just tell us a, a bit more about how you were thinking about this idea. Um, and how it's come to impact or shape your practice as a scholar. Yeah, thanks. I, I really like this question and lots of things come to mind. So I'll try to, to organize them as I'm speaking. <laughs> but, um, but I think that, you know, with my talk, I would say that the majority of uh, what I shared about my time with my son and being there with my son was um, during the lockdown of the coronavirus pandemic. And so um, sort of superficially, it was very much a being there, right? Because we were just together, <laughs> just the two of us. And so, um, so being there was accomplished in terms of our being present with one another. But, but when I sort of go a little bit deeper about that, something that I'm wondering about in relation to being there as a relation, um, in relation to ethics, has to do with intention. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering what is involved in releasing intention. I don't know if there can be a full release, but doing something with intention in relation to conducting research alongside children and with children. And what I mean by that is that, um, you know, as academics conducting research, any kind of research, like there's there's always an intention behind that that um, for for my experience on the tenure, tenure track anyway made me really uncomfortable, you know. So like I'm I'm doing this research with children because yes I'm absolutely curious and I want to know this, but I'm also doing this research so that I can publish something, so that I have something to present, so that I can, you know, it, it's about propelling my career forward in some way. And that's not the kind of being there that I feel like really resonates with this ethical research with young children. And so when I'm thinking more about 
is um, is this releasing of that intention. And it, I want to add to it doesn't necessarily always have to do in my mind with the intention of the researcher getting publications or presentations or even learning more and understanding more. But you know, with with our intentions for children as well, um, you know, what are what do I intend for Simon to learn in this process of map making, that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's something that I'm still definitely thinking about, but, um, but I think that to consider um, being with and being there as an ethical practice, there has to be some recognition, some disruption, I think, of, um, of this intention that leads to maybe predetermined outcomes. Um, so that, yeah, that's kind of how I'm thinking about that at this point. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's a really interesting point, uh, Courtney, in that I think a lot of what I've become aware of, you know, and I think it, it, it happened early on, right? When you begin to maybe see yourself in that space and in, in relationship to young people that you're working with. But, you know, underlying that idea of intention is, you know, the, the kind of desiring that happens for children to do certain things, to, to, to reveal certain things, to appreciate or value certain things that are, that are in large part not about their own values or interests or concerns, right. but rather your own, right? And so and, right. And that, that, that's a vast kind of network of possibilities. But mm -hmm. part of what I hear you talking about is, is kind of working against the way we use our own kind of network of interests and values and intentions to sort of be in relationship to children, right? right. And how it structures that relationship or how it shapes uh, the kind of work that we do with children in ways that maybe we don't often recognize but need to think about. Yeah, and I think that's key, right? Because if we really lean into the unrecognizable, I mean, that has the potential to to totally reframe what is involved in research, you know, and I think, I think that that's where you know, folks who might push back on this work a little bit, in the name of of having, you know, things planned out ahead of time to have that interview protocol in hand, um, you know, I think that 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 can be that idea of completely sort of re envisioning what research can look like is is really problematic for those folks, understandably so, because it is so emergent. And, um, and as you say, Chris, sort of, you know, propelled by this affect and desire that, um, you know, you, as, as a researcher, you become open to, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that um, conclusions are easier to draw, you know? Yeah, so this has me thinking a little bit about, um, I mean, obviously, the work we do is always situated, right? But you've done you've done research in school settings. You've done research in more like community facing settings, such as like the Saturday Art School program, and like you've been involved in a wide variety of spaces, uh, and then also at home, right? And so, I guess I'm curious, like when you think about that idea of being there. Uh, how has it how has it sort of materialized and rematerialized in different ways across those various settings that that you've been part of and maybe what are what are what are some of the things the the differences that have emerged that are that are maybe worth paying attention to and that mm. have kind of helped you 
to see this idea in a new way going forward? It's a big sure. question. So. Yeah, it's a big question, but it's a great question. And I think it's probably um, easier for me to do as a mom, not, not distinguishing myself as mom and then researcher or mother and then researcher. But yeah, I feel like in my, um, in my play with Simon, for instance, it's, I feel like it's easier for me to drop the so that, right? Like we're, oh, I'm, I'm asking questions about this and I'm, I'm really looking closely at this so that I can, you know, cultivate particularly, you know, particular kinds of experiences for him or I'm sharing this talk so that I'll have a line on my CV, you know, like as a mother, it's easier for me to drop that so that and just be, to drop the so that, if that makes sense, and just be with, um, to be with Simon. But when I think across contexts, I think in particular about a first grader um, that I got to know about last year at this time, um, I, I just started um, sort of a year-long phenomenological study in a, in a first grade classroom, asking the same questions I always tend to ask about kids' personal ecologies, what matters to them when it comes to, to reading. And I, I think last summer read um, Carla um, Shalabi's book about troublemakers. And so that was sort of, you know, that was sort of on my mind. And I was introduced to a first grade student who easily could have been one of the children profiled in Troublemakers. School was just not, first grade, first grade school was just not designed for this child at all. And it was, um, I wasn't really sure what to do as a researcher in that space um, because I was still building relationships with the teacher and building relationships with the students. But ethically, I didn't, I wasn't comfortable you know, just jotting field notes about what I was seeing, right? I feel like ethical research, there's some sort of advocacy or something there. Um, so the teacher actually asked me if I might be willing to spend a little bit of extra time with this child. And so I did every, and there are lots of mornings when I showed up to be with a child and the child wasn't at school or he wasn't at school yet. And so it was a very inconsistent relationship. But over the course of a few months, um, he and I, spent time together. <laughs> Initially, um, I was asked to sort of work through some reading recovery type things. You know, the intention was to go back to that idea of intention. The intention was that this one-on-one -on -one attention would help him feel more comfortable, perhaps give him some reading strategies that he didn't have before. Um, and it became clear early on that that's not, that was my intention. That was the teacher's intention, but that was not his intention. <laughs> um, and I don't know that that I could pinpoint what he wanted out of this relationship, but it became very clear that just making materials available to him and holding space for him to just be without constant redirection and constant guidance um, was, there was something that happened with that. So I have books and books of superheroes that this kid drew in the you know 20 minutes that we spent together a few mornings a week. Um, and I, you know, I always had my recorder out in the event that something interesting might happen. You know, you don't want to miss that. But it wasn't, I don't know, the intention in, in that moment just slipped away. And it was really just about 
sitting with this child while almost like like his anxiety slid away just for a little while and it had nothing to do well it may have had to do with my presence I don't know but it it was because there was a shift a momentary shift in that personal ecology where the pressures and the stress of the classroom weren't what he was experiencing in that moment and so um I got to witness that which I think is is a piece of this being there and this um you know sort of this ethically responsive research um but I am much more attuned to those moments now but you know I, I don't always need to be asking oh so why did you draw Captain America's shield like that and why did you do this you know oh tell me more about this like all of those great qualitative inquiry questions that were prompted to ask there's something about just witnessing what's happening and um and then you know doing your best to to amplify the experiences of, of those kids at home and at school and, and across contexts. Yeah, the, I, I, the thing that it, this has me thinking about is, and I think there's obviously a tendency and I have this tendency too, right? In terms of uh, researching children's drawing, for example, to ask those kinds of questions like, oh my, you know, tell me more about this. But Sometimes the, the thing that I hear you talking about, Courtney, is that, you know, being there um, is also just about being a different kind of presence, right, uh -huh. in, in relationship to children. And also, when that happens, um, part of what gets revealed are kind of the material conditions under which the child is sort of made to come into presence in a particular way, and also the, the, the kind of the way in which that those conditions mute or reduce or place that child under erasure in specific ways. And so part of what happens when you are able to, to be there with a child in that way is that they get a chance to come into presence maybe in a way that the school or that setting does not often want or allow. And that right. can often be even you know, more powerful, obviously, but also the way in which it reveals the, the actual conditions themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what it says about the school, the classroom, uh, the environment, the, 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 that, that setting, it's material. So yeah, it's a, right. it's a really interesting point. Well, and I think too, sort of building on that, Chris, I mean, it makes me, it makes me think of the implications of it all. You know, so if we if we come to understand the conditions under which children are ostracized in classrooms, or we understand the conditions under which they they feel aliveness in school in ways that that maybe they haven't before, you know, we're always we're always prompted to say, so what does that mean? So what does it mean for classroom practice? So what does it mean for you know? We kind of joked about this um, in the talk a couple of weeks ago. And to me, that just feels like such an impossible question, you know, because the conditions are so contextualized and so often ephemeral and so individualized that to sort of make these blanket assumptions about, you know, what we need to do to provide or cultivate or whatever particular kinds of conditions for children, you know, I, I wonder if maybe that's the wrong question. And maybe the question should be geared toward you know, how what do our interactions look like with children so that 
I don't know, we can, we can realize what those conditions are um, without this pressing need to like replicate them in some way. I don't know if that makes sense, but it does. And maybe that's just because I'm, all, I'm always gobsmacked when people ask me, <laughs> ask the so what question, you know, but that it makes me wonder if that's, if that's perhaps the wrong, the wrong question. I don't know. Yeah, Courtney, I think this is a good segue to our next question. Um, you cite the work of Christine Thompson, who remarks mm -hmm. that children exist in specific social cultural contexts. Um, this is such an important reminder, especially for those who work in close proximity to children and whose responsibilities entail taking seriously what children do, how they do it, and why it matters. So from your perspective, why is it so important to remember that children exist in specific social cultural contexts? Yeah, I mean, it has to do with priorities and, and our shifting priorities, right? Whenever we recognize sort of what, what context children are playing and, and learning in. And I think specifically of the, if you'll remember the clip of Simon's sidewalk chalk map. And I can think, so I can think about the production of that map and the sharing of that map across different contexts. So, you know, as, um, and, and without sort of going down a rabbit hole, you know, it's clear from my, my biography that I'm involved in literacy studies and it takes every fiber of my being not to limit my view of that context as a literacy event. When he mentioned the wobbly bridge, I wanted to scream, my baby is a genius. Listen to this vocabulary development. Are you kidding, wobbly? Are you kidding me, right? Here he comes, Harvard. But <laughs> even that like um, low key um, sort of um, um, asset <laughs> vision of him, um, yeah, it, it doesn't do, it, it, it limits all the other possibilities of what that moment could have been. For him, it didn't like, he's not thinking about his book, like, oh, I know this fancy word wobbly, you know? For him, it was this fully embodied, like, oh, I can make my body move like this. And, you know, it was, it was so much more than that. And so I think that that's why it's, it's critical that we become hyper aware of the context in which kids are producing these things and in the midst of these processes, because it's always more, it is always more than um, what our instinct tells us that we, you know, how we need to read it. So that's why, why I'm really, I'm drawn to, haven't read nearly as much as I, I would like, but this, you know, this, this post-humanist notion of um, speculative everything, right? Like we can do our best to identify what could be happening here and to amplify some of the experiences that, that we might be noticing, um, some of the affects and some of the transformations, but there's always more to it. And so speculation is sort of the best that we can do um, given, the, you know, given the tools that we have. And, and to me, that's, that's sort of the part of the creative process of this work alongside children is that you know, you're making something in that moment, understanding that it's always more than than what it is in that moment. And, and to me, that's, um, that's really exciting and it's why I love this work. Yeah, I think it's, this is also maybe a good time to, to linger a bit on the idea of uh, post-humanism and, and in particular, like uh, 
speculative attunements, right? Or mm. what it means to attune ourselves to young people's work in ways that are more speculative in nature, right? And so I guess one, one question, and it's a big question too, um, and you're welcome to enter it however <laughs> is possible, right? Uh, but what does, you know, what does, uh, what do speculative attunements make possible? Mm. That is worth paying attention to, right? For children, yeah. for schools, for teaching, for parenting, for being with children more broadly. Yeah. In some ways, I feel like um, speculative attunement, effective attunement, they, in my mind, they sort of function to, um, to make any barriers between us and them, between mother and child, to make those barriers very permeable, you know, so that when I'm, when I'm with Simon and he's creating these maps, or when I'm with a first grader and he's creating these superheroes, like in my mind, um, attunement involves recognizing the potential for transformation for, for both of us, you know, for both of us in that moment. And then it's not just um, watching a subject do something, right? But it's, it's experiencing that something in a very particular way. And so for me, that is the draw to post-humanism, um, sort of that permeability of, um, of being and becoming and understanding that um, you know, research with children isn't just about telling what we might perceive to be their story or naming their experiences, but sort of recognizing um, our entanglements in that. And, and for me, that's what attunement does. Um, it functions to um, just sort of constantly remind us that this is um, very much an entangled relationship. And it impacts my parenting. Um, since you mentioned Tina Thompson earlier, I have to say that I bought the book Untigering after she asked me a question about that in the talk and so much of this resonates right that it's um it's about um being responsive in a way that understands your own sort of implicatedness in this in this research moment um and it you know takes away the pressure from getting you know to get the story right because it all it's it's all sort of based on context and um I don't know what you what you think might be happening in that moment. I appreciate the uncertainty, I guess, that this kind of attunement begs, um, and the 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 lack of pressure to get the narrative right. I think. Yeah. Can, yeah. Can I ask like a? It, it's a follow up question, and it's it's has. Do to I do love with... the book? Yes, I love the book. <laughs> Good. That wasn't my question. But, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll save my review for the next podcast. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I guess I'm curious too, like um, in terms of being, being an educator and, and a researcher and a parent, 
practicing in speculative ways, hmm. right? Like, I, I guess I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about uh, whether, whether, you know, it engaging with your child or engaging with children at home or in schools in, in ways that are more speculative, like, is there an ease for you in the in in the, across those different settings, or is there, or is it just really a different set of complications? Yeah, I wouldn't say that there's an ease because I think um, I think there's a constant second guessing, but not you know what I mean, but not a second guessing that's like a bad thing that like oh I I drew mm, I should you know shouldn't have responded that way. But it's a second guessing that pushes you to ask, okay, so what else? All right, what else could it be? How else could, you know, how else could we describe this or explain it? And the biggest test for me <laughs> in engaging in this, you know, this these speculative ways of being has, you know, has involved sending a child off to kindergarten for the first time who comes home after six hours away and wants to process things and talk about things. And I'm very aware that I want to model this. Okay, so, you know, it could be this and it could be this. Five-year-olds love those words always. <laughs> this always happens, this always happens. He always gets to do this. And so it's really it's sort of engaging in speculative parenting, I guess, has been a really wonderful practice in, okay, so, truly it's not always. Like, <laughs> you know, how, how, how else can we tell ourselves whatever story it is that we're constructing that might be producing anxiety or, you know, um, the kinds of emotions that like it or not, you know, we, I don't want my child to be anxious. And so how else, yeah, how can I help him process these things so that we can be with our anxiety for a minute and then move on from that, right? Like to me, that's where um, speculative ways of being in relation to parenting become really important and really effective too, because it allows me to um, become more aware of these possibilities. I mentioned in the talk, it's a whole, I think it's a whole lot easier to write and say, oh yes, I'm very open to potential and to possibility than it is when you are in the moment with a child who's like, ah! <laughs> you know, like you want it. So there's this, um, so I, it's not ease, right? But it's, it, for me anyway, there's sort of this added pressure to, you know, like walk the walk and talk, like walk the talk or whatever that phrase is, you know, to not just say I'm open to possibility, but to really demonstrate in my life with my child what those, what that speculation can look like and, and what thinking about possibility can do um, for yeah. us as a family and for him at school too. Yeah, it reminds me of, of something Paul Duncan wrote and, and Paul I think is scheduled to join us the center here in the next couple of months but something oh, he nice. wrote in the 80s uh, about um, you know the the very real human frailty of, of saying one thing and doing another right right and yeah yeah you know, I think I, I can absolutely relate as a parent, as a teacher, as a researcher, you know, uh, believing, having conviction about this thing that you're committed to, that you think is important, and 
saying that you're going to live out that commitment in certain ways and then the the, the reality of actually living it and doing it is much more complicated yeah and i think well i wonder too about yeah I, so chris and i were in grad school together and everything then was very new but i remember um sort of encountering the posthumanist language of um, ethico onto epistemology for the first time. There is a whole lot of pressure that comes with that term, right? Because it's like it's it, it, everything's entangled, and you can't separate, you know, your work from your life. Blah blah blah. And I mean, holy cow! I didn't. It it really wasn't until much later that I really sort of wrestled with how complicated that idea is this entanglement of knowing and being and ethics and how it's all it's all entangled and it all in it, it informs everything that we do i think you know i think it's easy to sort of see those um those alignments for me anyway it's much easier to see how those things align and come together um in research but yeah with parenting you know i'll I'll read Untigering and I'll say, yes, absolutely. I believe this too. And then reflect on my practice. And I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe not. So, um, so yeah, I think that I, yeah, I think there's a constant, a constant struggle, but a good struggle, right. And really sort of coming to, um, to know what we believe, understanding that our beliefs are shifting and then, you know, seeing how that um, informs our relationships with with children as well. So Courtney, in thinking about the posthumanist entanglement, um, I find it interesting and important that you give your speculative attunement to physical and conceptual materials, um, such as maps, chalk, stories, media culture affecting Simon's worlding during uncertain times, right? So for listeners who are interested in working with young children, could you talk a little bit more about how you have come to notice um, materials as important and also how your researcher mother role shaped that attunement mm. to materials? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I the when I was first sort of, um, being born as a researcher, I was really, really drawn to popular culture, which, you know, is material, right? And sort of mass produced material. And what I found so fascinating then was all the weird stuff, weird, unexpected stuff that children would do with these mass produced things. Um, so um, I actually was, Chris, why don't you go ahead and ask that question? Because I was actually just about to use that as an example. Well, I was just going to, as soon as you brought this up, I immediately started thinking about this time. You were spending time at, at Penn State Saturday Art School. Um, mm -hmm. I think we we're, were in grad school at the time. And something emerged from that, that experience around killing Justin Bieber. And so I right. wondered if you, I wondered if you would just talk about it because it was a pretty amazing yeah. example of, you know, young people's relationship and interest in, in popular media cultures and, and material and how they yeah. take it up. And so at any rate, yeah. 
It's so it's so funny because when when Hayan asked asked that question, I thought, oh man, I should really, I should really talk about Sam. So yeah, I I um, Tina Thompson again, sort of my touchstone for <laughs> for this podcast, evidently. Um, knew that I was studying um, Justin Bieber fan culture. And there was uh, a 10 year old girl at Saturday art school who was really into drawing, well, talking about how much she hated Justin Bieber and then drawing scenes depicting his death. And so this, um, this has been published somewhere. Um, I'll look. <laughs> But, um, but she, I, I spent time with her and um, it, she was, she was appropriating ideas from the popular media, from YouTube as material. Um, she used her eye touch um, in a few different ways to, to essentially kill off Justin Bieber. Now, whether or not she really disliked him was not the point. The point was that in killing him off in all of these different ways, she was sort of, um, she was finding an in with a social group in the Saturday art school. And she was like creating an audience. Um, and among other things, like really showing her art, her developing artistic skill. So there was a whole YouTube series called 101 Ways to Kill Justin Bieber. And she came up with her own scenarios and would sort of storyboard um, these animated videos. I remember one of them was um, Justin Bieber singing at a concert and he like falls off a cliff into a pit full of sharks or something like that. My personal favorite, I think because she was really, she was really like, why are you here? <laughs> She did not get why I was so fascinated with, uh, with these drawings. Um, but it was the day that she came to me. She was like, I have got something to show you. And she brought her iTouch over. And if you remember the game Angry Birds, she'd used an app on her iTouch to recreate a scene from the Angry Birds. But instead of, instead of the birds killing pigs, I think is what they usually do in the game, they killed Justin Bieber. And she'd like X'd out his eyes. I mean, the, de the detail that she used was just amazing. And I think I think that what I love so much, yeah, that research appears in the um, occasional paper series through Bank Street. Um, so, and there's some, there's some pictures there, some images there of, of the art that she created, but it was so unexpected and so surprising and so delightful to see, um, to see how she took these really dominant narratives of girls in relationship with Justin Bieber at the time. And this was like 2010 to 2014. Um, and so, you know, Belieber fandom was, was quite the, quite the rage. Um, it was just so interesting to watch her um, gleefully use these materials in ways that in other places may have not been sanctioned, you know, these <laughs> visual depictions of violence, you know, I can imagine that that might, um, raise some suspicions for some for some people who might not have um, super open-minded um, conceptions of, of what childhood involves. But I, I see that potential in material all the time. So another, another one of my favorite um, anecdotes from my work with children involved um, a child whose 
chosen pseudonym was Trackstar because he really liked Jesse Owens. And the day in his second grade classroom that he sat down, the, the teacher called the children over for reading group. She was finishing up across the room. The children grabbed their materials. They went and sat down and he sat down in the teacher's chair. And this is a child who's pretty compliant, you know, like never got in trouble in the classroom. This is perhaps the most defiant thing if it could be read that way that he would sit in the teacher's chair. <clears throat> and as you might imagine, some teachers would say, excuse me, you don't get to sit there. That's my chair, right? But this teacher walked over, sat down in one of the little kids' chairs, you know, so she's all awkward. Her knees are like up to her ears. And he went to get up and she said, no, 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 you stay there. And so this child wound up facilitating this whole reading group from the teacher's chair because of all of the power that was sort of imbued in this material as a teacher's chair. And it just, oh my gosh, in that moment, it just created these wonderful ways of being that to my knowledge, he had not yet experienced in the classroom. He might not experience again, but for that moment, it was just, oh gosh, maybe, I don't know, like the word magical comes to mind. That's probably a little bit too romantic, but it was, it was so, it was just so powerful. Um, to witness him sharing this experience with his teacher and with the other kids too. And the other kids knew it because he got up. I remember he walked to the teacher, gave her a hug and said, I thought I was gonna get in trouble. Just a whole conversation for another day. But then all of the other children who had been sitting around the table got up, walked around the back and like did this super quick squat, you know, into the chair, like, oh, just, oh, like, is anything gonna happen? Is it gonna buzz? You know, it was just, I, I don't know. It was such this interesting, interesting thing. And so I think, Part of my draw to material is that, um, and I'm, I am drawn to artistic material, making material for sure, but also like the mass produced stuff, because I've seen, I have seen what children do with those things in really unexpected ways. In my house right now, it is all Lego. Um, Simon has recently discovered that there is a show called Lego City, and so now he has particular names for um, for some of his Legos, although they're also, others are named after people in our, in our borough that we know, which is kind of funny, but the stories that he comes up with are just, it, it's amazing. It's amazing. And it's totally unexpected. And then it's just this wonderful appropriation of what he sees on this show and what's happening in his, you know, personal ecologies otherwise, and how he becomes this great storyteller in relation to these toys. Um, that I, there's a time when I would have said, oh, he would never have this opportunity, you know, unless he had these Legos. But I know now that that's not true because, you know, he would, he has these stories. Kids, kids have stories. They have experiences they want to share and they, they will find ways to, to share those stories. It's our, I think it's our role um, as researchers, as teachers, as parents to witness that and to, to hold the space and to let ourselves be so pleasantly surprised when these things happen. Yeah, there's just so much to take in there, Courtney. Like, mm -hmm. uh, do you want to come play Legos with us? It's super fun. I really do. Yeah, I I just think there there's a lot of really important lessons in what you just shared. I mean, there's. The lessons about about being there right I mean I think for you in terms of when you think about that that work around Justin Bieber right 
part of part of your way of being there. Um, I mean, it, the work would have happened either way, more than likely, right? It would have found right. some way to like materialize. But I also think like part of being there is 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 with children is being there in a way that enables certain things which are typically repressed or eliminated from consideration as important or as possible to have a kind of presence and to have the permission that it needs perhaps to to grow and to be cultivated in certain ways right so there's that piece of right. it but then there's also and i think this is a really important part of of your work around like popular media cultures with in relation to childhood is is such a significant generative force in children's lives right and right. It's, it's such a material it, it's a pliable material that young people are so savvy at working for their own right. purposes and interests right not right. not only because it's interesting in its own ways but because it's also you know it's this it's it's the stuff that allows them to make sense of other worlds too right, right. and right you know, there's an under, there's a recognition there in the work that you do around this that I think, you know, you just really wish like would would pick up and have the kind of appeal and power that it probably deserves in children's mm -hmm. lives, right? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, you know, sort of going back to to what we talked about earlier with the how I anyway find that that implications question to be so tricky the so what question to be so tricky but um but I mean you remind me that yeah this this work matters as a teacher educator I really think it you know it matters in the lives of, of children and it matters in the lives of teachers as well mm -hmm. and so if there is a way if there is a way to Gosh, I don't even know. Like, I don't know if helping teachers recognize these moments. Yeah. If that's like, what what is enough? That's my question, you know. But um, because I I know that that they see it and they they see these really wonderful things that that children are doing. But I think that you know, I a big part of of this work for me has been amplifying the wonderful things that that children are doing, and and helping teachers feel um, confident, maybe to to pause what their what their intentions are, so that they can so they can witness what's happening too, um, you know. And I I used to think that oh that means we need to throw out the curriculum and you know start from scratch based on what kids would like. As Aaron I think Aaron Manning wrote um, with the I quote burn burn the shit to the ground and rebuild it. You know, I mean, that's, I think that's certainly one way to go about it, but I also think that just really helping teachers understand um, just the potential of children and their relationships with each other and with things and materials. Yeah, yeah I, I think that that has, that carries a lot of possibility um, for, for disrupting what school is and what it can be for kids. Yeah, absolutely. Courtney, uh, I just want to thank you again for taking time to be with us. It's it's always just such a pleasure to be able to have a conversation with you about your work and you know appreciate your your generosity and sharing not just your work but 
the work that occurs in a, on a more personal level at home with with Simon mm -hmm. and and for you know kind of opening uh, our audience and those who engage with the center to some of the the ideas and the things that you're thinking about and practicing it's really important stuff so thank you yeah thank you both for creating this space and um, it's it's been lovely to um, to be a part of and and to to return to things that I um, perhaps we put on the back burner for a little bit. So it's it's um, made me reconsider how I relate to my son and and um, and his friends. And it's just been a really wonderful experience. So I'm grateful. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks. Next time on Childhood Art, we sit down with Dr. Laura Trophy Pratt, senior lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University and the School of Child, Youth, and Education. Until then, please visit our webpage for additional updates and news at www.centerforthestudyofchildhoodart.com. Thank you. <laughs>